0: Week, I think it's 11 now, of our series called Equipped, where we're looking at spiritual disciplines, and uh, you know, just practices that we can use to become spiritually healthy people. And for um, the last several weeks, we've been sort of in a in a in a section of this series where we're looking just at the week of prayer. Uh, There's no way you can cover something as big as prayer in just one Sunday. So for the last several weeks, we've been talking about um, prayer and specifically how to use prayer to process the most difficult conditions and complex emotions you and I are going to experience in this life. And there, there really is no better book in the Bible to show you and I how to do that, how to process um, every situation and all the emotions that come with it in prayer. No book can show you that like the book of Psalms can. Um, there are places in Scripture that tend to deal with, um, you know, aim primarily at the, the head, the mind. You know, If you think about the New Testament letters of Paul, for instance, they tend to be um, you know, conceptual and theoretical. They have really long, uh, well-thought-out, fairly brilliant arguments. Uh, they're where we get a lot of our doctrine from. Um, and then you have some places in Scripture that deal primarily with the hands. Um, I think the book of James is probably the greatest example of that. James is a book that's meant to answer the question, what should your life look like if you have a faith that is alive? And so it's intensely practical. It deals with the hands, with what you should actually be doing. But while some um, parts of Scripture aim primarily at the head and some primarily at the hands, the book of Psalms deals primarily with the heart. And if you if you spend any amount of time in the Psalms and, and you um, begin to figure out how to really use the Psalms, what what the book of Psalms will do in a way that I don't know if if any of the other 65 will do it quite like Psalms will. Psalms will will not only show you what's going on in your own heart, which you and I are largely unaware of in any given time. Psalms will not only show you what's going on in your own heart, it'll teach you how uh, to process what's going on in your heart in a way that doesn't destroy you. Because there's an underlying sort of premise to the entire book of Psalms. It's a humbling one, but it's a really important one to grasp. And the message that that sort of is the foundation for the book of Psalms is that you need to figure out how to bring all that goes on in your heart into the presence of God in prayer because you are not qualified to deal with your own heart on your own. You're just not. We all think we are, but we're not. And Psalms shows us over and over again how to process literally everything that we're going to experience, every thought, every emotion. And today we're going to talk about a feeling or an emotion, or you could call it a state of the heart, um, that I think is is particularly difficult to deal with. Uh, We're going to talk about how to deal with sorrow. Now, sorrow obviously comes in... um, a lot of shapes and sizes. Uh, it's brought on by a lot of different things for different people, and it certainly has degrees and levels and layers to it. But I think, um, I think you'd agree that if anybody listening to me right now has experienced genuine sorrow, you'd know that sorrow is just kind of its own animal. And uh, what I mean by that is that sorrow um, doesn't respect any boundaries. Uh, I think that's one of the things that makes it unique as as a uh, a feeling or an emotion that we find in our hearts. It just doesn't respect boundaries. And what I mean is is you can't experience genuine sorrow in one area of your life and expect it to stay in that area of your life. Anybody who's really gone through it knows what I'm talking about, that sorrow has this unique way of sort of bleeding into and invading pretty much every area of life uh, until things that once brought you joy just don't anymore. And you wake up one day and you realize uh, you're just not who you used to be, and maybe a shell of who you could be. I don't know of any emotion that does that quite as poignantly and powerfully as sorrow, and I don't know anybody who would say that they're particularly good at dealing with sorrow, um, but that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to look at um, two psalms, uh, really the end of one psalm and then another psalm that uh Give us an amazing guide to how to deal with sorrow, when and not if it shows up in our lives. So what I'd like to, to do on the front end here is I'm going to read the final two verses of Psalm 39, uh, and then we'll, we'll read all six verses of Psalm 126. So this is Psalm 39 verses 12 and 13. It says, "Hear my prayer, Lord, and listen to my cry for help. Do not be silent in my tears, for I am a foreigner." Residing with you, a temporary resident, like all my fathers. Turn your angry gaze from me, so that I may be cheered up before I die and I'm gone. Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then, and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations... The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord had done great things for us. We were joyful. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like watercourses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. This is God's word. How do you handle sorrow when it shows up in your life? That's what I want to talk about today. And, and the first idea that really is foundational, uh, that not only will this psalm show us this, but really the entire Psalter, the entire book of Psalms shows us um, an idea that, that's that's so obvious that I think we can just glaze past it and not spend enough time on it. But, but it's foundational to the talk that we have today. So how do you handle sorrow? This is the first idea uh, we're going to cover today. Number one, this is how you handle sorrow. You expect sorrow. Uh, The first three verses of Psalm 126, it says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then, and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord had done great things for us. We were joyful. Now, we don't know exactly what this is a reference to, but what's clear here is that the psalmist is looking back on his own life and in the life of his people, and he's reflecting on a time. He's reflecting on the good old days. He's talking about a time when God moved so powerfully in his people's lives that they were like people whose wildest dreams had come true. And evidently, whatever God did here that the psalmist is talking about was on such a grand scale that even other nations, this was not just an Israelite thing, that surrounding nations looked on and said, you can't explain what's going on over there except for the power of God in their lives. But then immediately and totally without warning, As sorrow so often, you know, tends to operate. In verse 4, it says, restore our fortunes, Lord, like watercourses in the Negev. Now, the Negev was this, basically like a a dry, sort of lifeless desert. And so the psalmist here is reflecting back on the good old days, but where he finds himself is in a place in his life. Maybe somebody listening to me right now finds themselves in this place. He's basically saying, right now, God, my life feels like an absolute desert, And the point here uh, that this psalm shows us, that these psalms show us, is that even if you have a relationship with God, um, you should expect sorrow to to rear its ugly head in your life. And the reason, we're going to start with the bad news, by the way. This is going to end on a hopeful note, but you have to start here. Um, And the reason that it's so important to keep an idea like this in mind is because I think I think it's appropriate to say that more so than any culture really that's ever come before us, we are a culture that's set up to forget this idea that sorrow to a degree is simply unavoidable. We live in a, in a you know, you, you hear me use this phrase all the time, it's a postmodern secular culture is what sociologists will call it. There's a lot of things that that's characterized by, but one of them is we're, we're so pragmatic. We have an answer for everything. And our culture almost indoctrinates us with this idea that that there are, if we employ the right amount of techniques in the correct way at the correct time, it's almost like we're taught to think life's a video game, that if you just know when to jump and when to duck and when to turn, then you can get a high score and you can avoid you know, the, the pain and the trouble and the sorrow and the disappointment that, that less skilled people have experienced in their life because they just didn't do it right, uh, which is why every year our best-selling books are um, you know, what you could call self-help literature, which are books that are, are really... They're designed to teach you and I the techniques that we need to employ if we want to avoid the bad life and live the good life. You know, it's how to win friends and influence people. It's the seven habits of highly effective people. It's good to great. It's essentialism. It's deep work. It's the culture code. And I just want to pause and say I've read every one of those books that I just mentioned. They are on my shelf. I've highlighted them. They've been extremely helpful to me. There's nothing wrong with reading them. Um, I'm just making the point that our culture tends to believe this idea and get us to believe this idea that if we just you know, navigate life skillfully enough, then we're not going to experience any major pitfalls. And before it sounds like I'm just beating culture over the head, let me be the first to admit Christians do the same exact thing. We play the same exact game. We just spiritualize it to feel better about ourselves. I don't know how many Christians go through life, I I, I mean, I I don't even know what degree I go through life, Uh, even though we'd never say this out loud, uh, we're driven by this kind of subliminal mindset that says... You know, if I, if I live a good life, God's going to give me a good life. I'm not saying it's going to be perfect. It's just, you know, God's not going to allow anything really upending to happen in my life. And it just is worth noting. In fact, it would be irresponsible not to say this in, in the midst of a teaching about sorrow that wherever we got that idea, it was not scripture. Uh, Even the book of Psalms dismantles that one very quickly. This may surprise you to hear, but um, in the book of Psalms, there's 150 chapters. um, uh, Any any theologian or commentator or whatever will tell you that that the majority of the Psalms in the Psalter are what you would call Psalms of Lament. Psalms of Lament are simply prayers prayed by people in the midst of great hardship and loss and pain and difficulty and sorrow. And so, you know, you want to think about it this way. If, if you were a Christian and the only book of the Bible you had was Psalms, the other 65 were lost, uh, you would quickly, after reading through it just a, just a couple of times, you would quickly arrive at the idea that sorrow is just a part of living in a broken world. And and there's many times in life that even if you haven't done anything specifically wrong, even if there is no specific sin to tie your suffering to, just like there's not in Psalm 126, he's not repenting of any known sin. That's not why he finds himself feeling like his life is a desert, uh, because that's the way life is, that that, that sometimes, even if we haven't done anything wrong, sorrow is just a part of the path. And so what I'm driving at here is simply that sorrow, to a degree, is unavoidable. Uh, but if I can press this idea a little bit further before we move on to our next one, um, I, I just want to offer to you that not only for Christians specifically, not only should sorrow not be sorrow should not only simply be seen as unavoidable, but for Christians we should also see sorrow as necessary uh, and, and and a necessary sign of growth in our lives. And here's why I say that. I'm going to ask you a question. Please don't answer this out loud. What's the purpose of the Christian life? Think about that for a second. There's a lot of right answers to that question, but a right answer to that question is found in the question itself. It's found in the definition of this word Christian. Uh, Christian was a title given to followers of Jesus in Antioch. You read about that in in the, um, the book of Acts. And it comes from a Greek word, Christianos, which literally meant little Christ. It was originally a slur. It was meant to be an insult, but Christians heard it and they thought, actually, that's kind of the point, so we're going to stick with that. So we're literally calling ourselves what people once referred to as an insult when we say we're Christians. But that's the purpose of the Christian life. The idea is that the image of Jesus would be be formed so, so powerfully and continually in you and I that we look like miniature versions of Jesus. So what I'm saying is the purpose of the Christian life is to look like Jesus I didn't think that was going to knock anybody out of their chair this morning. But, but building off of that, let me say this. One of the titles that Scriptures assigns to Jesus is a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. Isaiah, actually, is the one that assigns that title to Jesus. And you see the evidence of that bore out in the Gospel accounts. I mean, you look at the life of Jesus, and what's clear is he, was all, he, was, he, was doing, he did a great deal of weeping. He was crying all the time. You see Jesus weeping over the fallen state of people who refuse to repent. Uh, you see that when he's, when he's riding um, into Jerusalem uh, you know, during the trial entry, uh, uh, entry. You see Jesus weeping as he looked at just the state of mankind and the things that they had to endure because of the, the, um, the curse of sin. You see that in Jesus in John chapter 11 as he's weeping beside the tomb of Lazarus. The point is Jesus was weeping all the time and what that means for us is that Christians have every reason to expect that growing in, in the image of Christ means that you should expect more and not less sorrow. Now, what I'm not saying here is that depression is the sign of spiritual growth. I'm not talking about that kind of sorrow. What I'm saying is that when you and I see reality through the lens that, that God sees reality through, when we see it as it is, there's no way that you see a, broken, a world that's been broken by sin and it filled with people who are broken by sin without experiencing a certain sorrow. And as you grow more like Jesus, I think what happens is you just feel more. You just become more human. Yeah, the, the, the heights of your joy are higher, but with that, the depths of your sorrow are deeper. And so we should expect sorrow. And, and the reason that, that this idea, uh, you know, as is, is much as it's not fun to talk about, the reason this is so important, I heard somebody say this, and this is brilliant. Uh, I thought it was brilliant to me, at least, is because if, if you and I don't, come to expect sorrow, living in this broken world, then we're going to go through life always crying about two things instead of one. We'll cry about uh, the thing that's grieving us, and then we'll cry about the fact that we're grieving. We'll cry about whatever's making us unhappy, but then underneath that surface-level grief, within our hearts, we're going to find ourselves saying, why is this happening to me and not somebody else? You know, I've lived a good life. You know, God owes me better than this. I deserve better than this. This shouldn't be happening to somebody like me. And the human heart can't, that's that, that, that kind of multi-layered, uh, multifaceted, faceted uh, you know, double grieving, whatever you want to call that, the human heart simply can't sustain that for any length of time without sinking underneath it. And so first and foremost, you and I should expect sorrow. But of course, that raises the question, what are we supposed to do? with sorrow once it shows up in our lives, which I I realize is where a a lot of people are coming from right here and right now, and this is what we're going to spend most of our time on. This is our second idea today. Number two, here's what you do with sorrow when it shows up in your life. You sow your sorrow. I'm going to read verses five and six to you. This is Psalm 126. It says, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. Now the metaphor here is pretty obvious. Uh, a farmer s- sows his seed, he plants his seed, he scatters his seed, uh, and, and eventually, not immediately, you know, not overnight, but over time, he comes back to his field one day, he's filled with joy because a harvest is there. But what's interesting about this is that the psalmist is talking about sowing your tears, sowing your sorrow, just the way that a farmer would sow seed. Now, what he's saying here is that on the one hand, you should not, when you talk about sowing your sorrow or sowing your tears, what this means is that on the one hand, you should not, you know, stuff your tears or stuff your sorrow deep down. You know, keep it to yourself and pretend like it's not there. On the other hand, what you should not do is just kind of thoughtlessly dump your sorrow everywhere you go. It, what this psalm is calling us to is, is almost a certain, a, certain str- a certain strategy to the way that we deal with our tears, almost a, a methodological way that we go about processing grief. <clears throat> Now you've heard me. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you've heard me say that Psalms offers basically a, a unique way and a third way to dealing with with what goes on in your heart. Uh, I've said this the last several weeks that you know, with religious people, the, the religious traditional way of dealing with what goes on in your heart is just pretend like it's it's not really there. You know, religious people have a tendency if they if they if they know that they're thinking or feeling something that they shouldn't be thinking and feeling, they just, the way that they deal with it is by not dealing with it. I'll just pretend like I'm not really sorrowful. I'll just pretend like I don't really have tears. I'm just going to shove that down and you know, turn it into an ulcer or whatever it is. That's the religious way of dealing with things. The modern secular way of dealing with things is kind of exactly the opposite of that, where it's just, I just need to get this out. I just need to vent this. I just need to thoughtlessly dump this on everyone that you know is around me and, and, and everywhere I go. Um, but what the psalmist is calling you and I to hear is something different than either of those approaches. Because if you think about it, if, if a farmer has a bag of seed and he pretends like he doesn't have a bag of seed, and so he just kind of you know keeps that to himself and doesn't do anything with it, obviously that's not going to turn into a harvest. But on the other hand, if he does have a bag of seed and he walks out into the middle of his field and he cuts the bottom of it and he just dumps it all on the ground, also not going to yield a really impressive harvest. And so what this is talking about here is... is is sowing our sorrow, and learning how to plant our tears. And if we do that, the promise is that our tears are actually going to turn into, they're actually going to produce this harvest that would never otherwise be possible in our lives. Now, this this promise here is is fairly amazing because this is above and beyond what most people are even thinking to hope for in the midst of sorrow. Because most of us, when we're dealing with a great deal of hardship or pain or loss or suffering, you know, we're content to just kind of quietly hope that one day this is going to give way and then the joy is going to come back. And certainly, Scripture talks about that in, in, in different places. But what Psalm 126 is promising you is something far greater than that. This is not saying that your sorrow will give way to joy one day, this is saying that your sorrow will actually be the cause of joy in your life. Because if you think about it, a seed does not give way to a harvest. A seed is the cause of the harvest, and that's exactly what this psalm is holding out as a possibility for you, depending on the way that you process your sorrow. And so it's it's saying you don't just when when a when a time of sorrow shows up in your life, and in the in the loss and the grief, the pain, all that comes with that. That's not a, certainly that's not wasted time for you and I. And that's not a time that we should just be thinking, all right, I got to get my i got to get myself together. i got to put my head down, drive, put one foot in front of the other, and just get through this. What this is saying is that if you learn how to sow your sorrow, it's going to turn into health and life and growth and joy and wisdom and a harvest in your life that would never otherwise be possible. So here's the million-dollar question. How do you do that? I mean, what does that mean to sow your sorrow, to plant your tears, to treat the pain in your life? the way that a a farmer would would treat the seed that he sows in a field. And the answer to that, I know that this is not going to be super helpful in the front end, so I'm going to walk us through this, but the way that you sow your sorrow is very simply, uh, you need to learn how to pray, period. It's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks here, and it's what the entire book of Psalms is designed to teach us how to do. What every single Psalm shows us when you zoom out from them is how to bring what is going on in your heart into the presence of God in prayer. That, which is what, you know, that's what praying your sorrow is. That's what praying your emotions is, praying what's going on in your heart. That's what we're talking about. And, and what what that does is, is really prayer is the primary discipline that will transform not only the griever, but the grief that they experience. Now, if I just left you there, I know that that's not very helpful. And so what I want to do with the time that we have left is I want to, I want to walk through it's difficult to describe but but three things that this entails what I want to offer you is three ways based on the psalms that you and I are called to pray so that our sorrow will turn into a harvest in our lives and and, and what I'm going to offer you is is basically there's there's three realizations that we need to sow our sorrow underneath of what I mean is that even while you're grieving What you and I need to learn how to do, and this is what the psalmist does over and over and over again, is even in the midst of our grief, we need to learn to drive certain truths about God into our mind and into our hearts, and wrap those truths around our grief, and sow our sorrow underneath the realization of those things, because what will happen is it'll turn our sorrow into a harvest of joy in our lives. Now, here's those three realizations. First off, we need need to learn how to sow. You need to learn how to sow your sorrow under a realization of God's grace. You need to learn how to sow your sorrow under a realization of the cross. And you need to learn how to sow your sorrow under a realization of your hope. And we'll walk through those things. First off, you and I need to learn how to sow our sorrow under a realization of God's grace. And what I mean by this is that you need to understand, specifically when you are in the grieving process, when sorrow is is at your doorstep, you need to understand not only that God already knows everything that's going on in your heart, but you need to understand that in His grace, it is safe for you to bring all of it to Him. Now, l- l- let me show you uh, maybe the most stark example of this in the entire book of Psalms. It's, it's the final verses of Psalm 39, 12, and 13. We read this on the the front end. It says, Hear my prayer, Lord, and listen to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears, for I'm a foreigner residing with you, a temporary resident like all my fathers. And then I want you to pay real careful attention to verse 13. It says, Turn your angry gaze from me so that I may be cheered up before I die and am gone. And that's the end of Psalm 39. Now, if you read through the Psalms, you will find a great deal of raw emotion. But what almost every Psalm has in common is that it always finds some semblance of a high note or a hopeful note or a positive note to end on. Psalm 39 is a marked exception to that rule. My version of the Bible actually softens what David is saying in the Hebrew when it says, turn your angry gaze from me. If you, if you look at what Dave, David's words there in the Hebrew are, what he's, what he's basically saying is, God, turn your face away from me. Don't even look at me because maybe then I would be able to experience some comfort and some peace before I die. Now, what, what Psalm 39 is, what it represents it is a prayer prayed by a man who was so totally racked with grief that not only is he not asking for what he should be asking for, he's asking for the exact opposite. He's literally asking God to turn his face away from him. Now, now here's what I would think a quote-unquote mature Christian would be praying in this place. What, what, what we should be reading here is somebody saying, God, life has proven once again that it fails to satisfy the deepest longings of my heart, and here I am again, you know, bearing up under this crushing weight of sorrow. What I need for you to do, Father, is turn your face to me, because there and only in your presence will I find the peace and the comfort that my soul so needs. David is asking for literally the opposite of that here. And so you, you look at these words and you'll find, first off, they are incorrect. Secondly, I think they're immature. And I think you could even make the case that this prayer has a certain tinge of disrespect to it. You know, this is the spiritual equivalent of a toddler yelling at his dad and saying, don't even look at me, just get out of my room. And you zoom out from that and you think, that's in the canon of scripture. That's in a book that's designed to show us how to pray, the book of Psalms. And it it begs the question, what on earth is that doing in there? And and a guy named Tim Keller Uh, who wrote a a year-long devotional through the book of Psalms called the Songs of Jesus that I've been going through for years now, he spoke to specifically those verses of of that psalm, and to me he explained it perfectly. Here's exactly what he said. He says, The psalm ends without a note of hope, and that is instructive. It is remarkable that God not only allows His creatures to complain to Him of their ills, but actually records those wails in His Word, and then Keller quotes a guy named Derek Kidner, who wrote a commentary on the Psalms, who said this, The very presence of such prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how men speak when they're desperate. There's a, there's a tendency for, for people like me. Uh, you know, I was born and raised in this um, I've known all the, you know, the right answers, the ones you're supposed to have, the way that you're supposed to, to, to you know, think about God and feel toward God and think about your life and feel about your life. I've known all those my whole life. There's a tendency in people like me that when we go through periods of life and we think and feel like David thought and felt in Psalm 39, there's a tendency for us to do the most ridiculous thing imaginable, which is to play pretend with a God who already knows everything about us. And I think the reason that we do that, I'll speak personally, and and maybe you can plug this this in in your life. I think the reason that we do that is because we believe that it would be disrespectful or arrogant to get as honest with God as David so often gets with God all throughout the book of Psalms. I just want to offer to you that I think the exact opposite is true. This is is me speaking now. This This is a conviction that I have. what is is disrespectful and arrogant is for you and I to do anything else other than bring exactly what's going on in our hearts into the presence of God in prayer. It's disrespectful because it proves that you and I are not trusting God to be gracious enough to handle the ugliest parts of our hearts, and it's arrogant because we're trusting ourselves to be able to deal with what's going on in our hearts on our own. And when we, and so what we'll do is we'll either refuse to pray altogether because we know we shouldn't be feeling the way that we actually feel, or when we pray, we'll try to kind of dress up our prayers and, and more or less take the edge off them. But when we do that, which one thing I love about the Psalms is you're not going to find fake religiosity in the Psalms. This is people bringing their, their bare, raw emotions into the presence of God knowing that God can clean up my heart in a way that I can't. And when we refuse to do that, we're never going to experience the the psychological, the emotional, the spiritual healing that's available to us in the presence of God in prayer. We need to practice complete transparent honesty with God with what's going on in our hearts. He already knows anyway. He's just waiting for us to get honest in his presence. And and what we need in order to do that, this is the whole point of this, this, this move here, what we need in order to practice that kind of honesty with God is to root ourselves in the knowledge that when we come before God, we are coming before a gracious God who sees our hearts to the very bottom and yet still calls us to lay our hearts bare before him in the presence of prayer because he and he alone can create in us clean hearts and renew right spirits within us. So first and foremost, you can tell I'm kind of passionate about this one. First and foremost, we need to sow our sorrow under a realization of God's grace. That's the first way that we sow our sorrow. Secondly, however, we need to sow our sorrow under a realization of the cross. Uh, To use the, the Derek Kidner quote, who said that God, he understands, you know, where we're coming from. Uh, and he knows how men speak when they're desperate. The, the, the reason, this is, this is one of the things that's so unique about Christianity. Uh, it's why it's so ridiculous to hear you know all religions basically say the same thing. It could not be further from the truth. The reason that God knows how men speak when they're desperate is because the Christian God is the, is the only God. The gospel is, is the only belief system. Christianity is the only belief system that offers you a God who even claimed to enter into this world Uh, to to, to put on human flesh and to actually become a man of sorrows, not only alongside us, but in our place. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, just hours before the cross, he called out and he said, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. And just hours later, as he's on the cross, he's calling out before God and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so what just the final hours of Jesus' life are showing us is that Jesus, who was God himself, personally knows what it's like to be absolutely crushed under the horrible weight of sorrow and to call out under that weight only to be forsaken and abandoned. Now, I'm I'm just going to tell you, there's a lot of belief systems that offer you a God that demands that you go through that for them. Christianity is the only one that says, no, God went through that for you. And even, even secularism, you know, which is full of, littered with false gods, you know, the false god of, of career success or respect or your reputation or money or physical appearance or romantic love or whatever it is. Secularism offers you all kinds of gods that will make you go through that in order to get what you want. Jesus says, no, I, I, went, that, I went through all of that for you because you were what I want. There's no, there's no message like that in any other belief system. And when you and I see Jesus Christ going through that for us, And we learn how, even as we process our sorrow, when we learn how to process our sorrow under a realization of the cross, what that does, what the cross does, is it saves us from going down three really destructive paths that sorrow can lead us down. First and foremost, sowing your sorrow under a realization of the cross will save you from going down the path of self-pity. You know, scripture, Scripture, just in case I haven't been clear here, Scripture is, is, is crystal clear that there are times in life when you and I are called to weep. We're called to feel sorrow. It would be wrong not to weep and to feel sorrow. To see reality through the lens that God sees it uh, calls for sorrow the way that it did in Jesus' lives. And so it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. It's an appropriate thing to weep in, our, in, in loss, to weep in death, to weep in, in, in pain, to weep in you know, all those kinds of things. But what's not okay is to weep in self-pity. Scripture nowhere says that that's an okay way to weep, because the moment you and I start going down that path, what, what will happen if, if that's not cut off, is that'll turn us into people who are choked with bitterness, we're unable to forgive, and we're going through life constantly offended because we believe that we deserve to be treated better than we've been treated. And the, the best antidote for that in, in the universe is the cross of Jesus Christ, because the cross shows us, on the cross what we see is Jesus experiencing the suffering, the ultimate suffering that at least a part of us knows that we deserve and the human heart is most afraid of. And he's going, through that, he's going through all of that in our place so that we would never have to. And so the more that we learn to go back to the cross, even as we process our grief, the more that we grow in the ability to say, Jesus, the suffering that you've called me to walk through is nothing compared to the suffering you walked through for me. And if you went through that for me, then I can go through this for you. So first off, you learn how to sow your suffering under a realization of the cross. And first off, it'll save you from your own self-pity. Secondly, not only will it do that, but it'll save you from hopelessness and this nagging fear that your suffering and and your sorrow is meaningless. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he said that our light and momentary affliction is producing, this is exactly how my version of the Bible translates it, he said it is producing an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. I was thinking about those words this week, and it dawned on me that if I was Paul, I don't know if I would have seen my life the way that he saw his life. Because when Paul talked about his affliction as light and momentary, I tend to look at Paul's life and see heavy, lifelong affliction. Paul didn't see it that way. But what's more amazing to me is that even in the midst of the mess that he was in, before he got to see the end of his story, Paul still had this surefire confidence that whatever he went through, God was going to use it none of it was going to be wasted, none of it was going to be meaningless, that all of it would somehow produce a unique, particular kind of glory. And, and I don't think it's far-fetched to say that if you were Paul, I think if you know yourself at all, you know it would have been really hard for you to have that kind of confidence. You you look at Paul's life, he sacrificed all of his security, all of his upward mobility, you know, as a Pharisee in the house of Gamaliel to go and follow Jesus. His life was marked by beatings and betrayals and shipwrecks and snake bites, and he's wasting away in prison. And I I know if that was me, that my heart would eventually start calling out and wondering, does any of this mean anything, or, or is this just wasting my time and stealing my life from me? I think that's one of the primary questions sorrow calls us to ask. Paul didn't ask that question. He was sure that this was going to produce something in his life that was not otherwise possible unless God walked him through what he was walking through. And and it begs the question, how do you have that kind of confidence in the midst of your sorrow? And the answer for Paul is, he learned how to interpret his suffering through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. What What we're looking at when we look at the cross is we are looking at the tangible evidence that God specializes in taking things that are absolutely bad and transforming them into something that is unbelievably good. That's what the cross is. Because at the same time, what the cross shows us is the worst event in human history, that's the death of the Son of God, the murder of the only truly innocent man to ever live, is at the same time, through the power of God, transformed into the greatest act in human history. The throwing open of the doors of heaven so that men and women from every nation, tribe, and tongue can become sons and daughters of God by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. The power of God takes something that is quantifiably evil and he turns it into something that is unbelievably good. And as I was putting this idea together this week, I started thinking, you know before we can 't appreciate this like we could have if we lived before Calvary, but before Jesus Christ died on a cross, you, do you realize a cross, the symbol that was the cross was was one of the most inhumane symbols in human existence. It was a symbol that that really drove home every evil act of wicked, savage brutality that mankind was capable of. It was the pinnacle of our inhumanity, the symbol of the cross was. At the height of the Roman Empire's power, they would actually line the roads leading into and out of the cities that rebelled against them, that tried to stand up against them. They would line the roads with crosses And when travelers would walk those roads and have to see the cross, it would instill in them a certain fear, a certain anxiety, a certain hopelessness before the might and the savagery of the Roman Empire. That's how people viewed the cross for thousands. That's why scripture says cursed is someone who hangs on a tree. That's how the cross was viewed for thousands of years until Jesus died on one. And now that same symbol that used to inspire so much fear and anxiety in people is a symbol that for thousands of years people have thought about people have dwelt on, people have worn around their neck as a reminder of the love that God has for them to get them through the hardest times of life. That is so incredible to me. That's the power of God. And what that means is that when you and I When we begin to to walk through affliction and sorrow and loss and pain and we start intuitively asking the question, is this going anywhere? Does this count for anything? Or is this just meaningless? The most important thing we'll do there is go back to the cross where we see it's not meaningless. It's not meaningless. Because one time there was an event that, that everyone looked on and said there's no way God could bring something good out of something this bad. But he did, which is the only reason why you and I have hope. And if God can do that in the cross of Jesus Christ, he can do that in your and my life. The third thing sowing your sorrow under a realization of the cross will do, not only will it save you from self-pity, not only will it save you from the feeling that your suffering is meaningless, but, but it'll also save you from loneliness. All right. Any, anybody that's experienced sorrow, I'm, you can, I'm sure you can attest to the fact that there's a certain isolating nature to sorrow. And, and I'm sure that, that whoever's really going through it today, it, I just want to tell you, if you ever have found yourself feeling like, man, nobody really understands me, I just want to let you know, that's because nobody really does. And scripture actually affirms that. Psalm uh, Proverbs, it, it's, uh, it's uh, Proverbs chapter 14 verse 10 actually says that the human heart, this, this is so amazing to me, it says, the heart knows its own bitterness and no outsider can share in its joy. And what that proverb is getting across is this idea that that what happens in your heart is so complex and inward and hidden that there is an irreducible solitude to the human life. It, what that means for you is that you're going to experience things. Um, you're gonna you're gonna be you're gonna be called to walk through things. And and the, and the bottom line is to a degree, no, one, no human being is ever going to really be able to truly understand you or to walk with you everywhere you go. And I don't, I don't think anything brings that to the surface quite like sorrow does. But the point is, when you and I go back to the cross in the midst of our sorrow, what we see is that there is one who understands us. There is one who can walk with us everywhere we go. There is a high priest who can sympathize with our needs because he stood in our place before God. You may have heard of him before. His name's Jesus. And I'll tell you, there's been a lot of things that I've gone through in my life, and, and again, maybe this is where you find yourself now. There's a lot of things I've gone through. I know I'm a young man, but I've gone through a number of things in my life where I, I didn't need an answer. I didn't need a solution. I just needed to know that somebody was sitting in it with me. And the gospel says that's exactly what you have in Jesus Christ. You have someone who's in it with you. And you know, recently I, w- I was talking to somebody, going through a great deal of sorrow in their own life, um, they've legit legit—they've they, been dealt a tough hand, a tougher one than I was dealt, and they have a difficult path ahead of them to walk, and, and they were just being honest with me and candid with me, and they said, I've been calling out to God, I'm looking for clarity, I'm looking for answers, I just want to feel His presence and I feel like He hasn't answered me, I feel like I don't have any more clarity than when I started calling, and he, what He's saying is I feel forsaken, I feel abandoned, I feel alone, And I sent him a text message and I I just wanted to to, to read this to you all. If anybody else feels like that today, like you're alone, like you're forsaken, like you're abandoned, I just want to tell you the same thing that I told him. I said, "I'm, I'm not naive enough to think this will help you right now, but all I can tell you is that you are right where Job was. You're right where the psalmist so often found himself to be. You're right where Jesus Christ personally was when he found himself calling out to a God who'd forsaken him. So we need to learn to sow our sorrow under a realization of God's grace. We need to learn to sow our sorrow under a realization of the cross. But thirdly, and this will be our last idea today, we need to learn to how to sow our sorrow under a realization of our hope. Psalm 126, verse 6 says, Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. If you read through the entire book of Psalms, what you'll find is that the final five psalms of the Psalter uh, are all psalms of praise. They end on the absolute, most explosively high, joyous notes imaginable. And a man named Eugene Peterson spoke to the significance of the Psalter ending that way. Uh, He said it far better than I'd ever be able to, and so I want to read his quote to you. He said, we have to realize What the Psalms are teaching us is that all true prayer pursued far enough will become praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry and fearful the experience it traverses, ends up in praise. It does not always get there quickly. It does not always get there easily. In fact, the trip can take a lifetime. But the end is always praise. There are intimations of this throughout the Psalms. This is not to say that other prayers are inferior to praise, only that all prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Don't rush it. Don't try to push it. It may take years. It may take decades before certain prayers arrive at the hallelujahs of Psalm 150. Not every prayer is capped off with praise. In fact, most prayers, if the Psalter is a true guide or not, but the prayer is always reaching toward praise and will finally arrive there. So our lives fill out in goodness earth and heaven meet in an extraordinary conjunction. Clashing symbols announce the glory. Blessing. Amen. Hallelujah. Let me call the worship team up, and I want to close with a story. A couple of months ago, I was listening to a podcast by a pastor by the name of Kevin DeYoung, and he was interviewing Tim Keller for his podcast, um, who was a pastor. If you know Tim Keller, he pastored in New York for a number of decades. He Uh, He stepped down a couple of years ago, and since he stepped down, he's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which if you know anything about cancer, um, that's a tough one to have. And uh, and so the podcast began, um, you know, they asked Keller the question that everybody who interviews Keller asks them, which is, you know, how he's doing. And his answer to how he's doing with pancreatic cancer was, um, I just found it so inspiring to me, I just wanted to share it with you. Uh, He said, he's in his 70s now, he said that looking back on his life, What he's come to realize is that all his life, he and his wife were trying to create heaven on earth. Uh, And that ultimately is what led to so much of their disappointment and so much of their frustration and so much of their sorrow. And they they had unique ways, unique techniques of doing it. He said that his wife would look to create heaven on earth in vacations and family time. And he would look to create heaven on earth. Uh, you know, with his career and ministry success and different things that he got off the ground and things that he was able to do for God. But he said in in having pancreatic cancer, uh, that 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 not only showed that to him, but in so many ways it it freed him from needing to do that. And this this is so inspiring to me. He said that, I, I think he's getting checkups every two weeks now, knowing full well that the next checkup he gets could be the last one that he has. Even living with that kind of uncertainty, he said that now in his 70s, both he and his wife find themselves more able to enjoy life than they ever have been. And the reason I tell you that story is because every single, if you know anything about yourself, every single one of us does the same thing. We try and we try and we try to create heaven on earth. And I think some of the most profound self-knowledge you can come to in your own life is to discover your own techniques for doing that and the areas of of your life that you try to bring heaven down to earth. And no matter matter how often we try it, no matter how skilled we think we get at it, it doesn't work. And that ultimately is the cause of our frustration and of our disappointment and of our sorrow because heaven doesn't exist in this world, not since Genesis chapter 3. But the hope of the gospel is that even though we cannot create heaven on earth, we serve a Savior who can. And He's promised that one day He will. Scripture promises that Jesus came here once as the Lamb of God. He will return as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And when He does, He will create a new heaven. And He will create a new earth. And for everyone who calls on Him and puts their trust in Him, He will give us new bodies in which we'll, we'll live in that new creation that will never again be touched by the power of sin, never again touched by the power of sorrow. And in that moment we'll know this is the heaven that I've longed for my whole life but never been able to create with my own two hands. My Savior has done it for me. This is the final thing that we need to understand when we sow our sorrow. We need to do so with our end in mind, with the knowledge that in Jesus our end has been written that sorrow does not have the final say for any of us. It's just a matter of time before sorrow is behind us forever. This is how you process sorrow in prayer, by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. That's it. And that's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, I want to thank you that we have a Savior who experienced sorrow in himself a Savior who knows what it's like to be crushed under the weight of sorrow, a Savior who knows what it's like to call out to you and to be forsaken. But what we also have is a Savior who's who's overcome all of that and gives us a hope that goes beyond that. Father, would you teach us how to sow our sorrow so that what would destroy us would only produce a harvest of joy in our lives. Let us be able to do this for your glory and our joy. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.